You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Six times coming up in the rest of Matthew chapter 5 here, our Savior and King is going to start off teaching on a topic, saying something similar to those words. You have heard, but I say to you. And remember, we mentioned this last week, but remember, Jesus' I say to you, which he repeats a lot in his teachings, is no small throwaway phrase. Rather, just like the Old Testament prophets often started off what they said with thus says the Lord, meaning this is what the Lord says to you, so Jesus, but being the Lord and being our king himself, he speaks to those in his kingdom with this I say to you. And so six times coming up in this chapter, our Lord is going to start teaching with a phrase like that. And concerning what the six topics are that he chooses to bring up, well, if you just quickly skim down at your Bibles, you can see them in the headings coming up. Because the six topics that Jesus is going to bring up in the rest of chapter 5 are anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and loving our enemies. Anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, loving our enemies. And concerning those six topics, we'll obviously dig into each one of them coming up as a church, but in how we'll cover them, we will do so in three weeks together here in Matthew. And we'll do these six topics in three weeks because, again, if you look at these topics, while there is debate on this, I think they can really be categorized into three different pairs. Three different pairs. Because first, look at that first top, those first two topics again of anger and lust. Anger and lust. And ask yourself, what, what do those have in common? And the answer is, well, they're both clearly internal passions. Internal passions. But not only that, but they're also things that if you only focus on the externals, like not murdering or not just actually sleeping with somebody physically who isn't your spouse. If you only focus on that, they're not as difficult. And yet, what Jesus does for both of those, as we'll see this morning, is he makes them not just or mainly external, but drastically internal. Right? So that's the first pair. And then the next two topics are divorce and oaths. And it is true that the topic of divorce comes right after the topic on lust on purpose, but even more so, what do divorce and oaths have in common? Well, they're both serious commitments, and so they're both about making true or not making true on your word and your promises. And in fact, back then, Jesus seems to have addressed these topics specifically because divorce and oaths were things that people thought they could make and then get out of pretty easily. And yet, in contrast, Jesus shows us that what we say and what we promise really does matter. Which then finally leads to the final two topics of retaliation and loving our enemies. And, and those are probably the easiest to see why they fit together. Because in both, it's not just that we should not be mean to our enemies, although that's true and we know that. But even more so, Jesus our Lord teaches us that we should actually deeply love our enemies. <laughs> which is an astonishing command. And so that's our Lord Jesus and what he's about to address in these six topics coming up. And again, for each of them, he starts with some sort of variation of, you've heard that I was, it was said, but I say to you. And quickly, just on that phrase, to be clear, when Jesus says that, he will partly quote the Old Testament often. 
But that does not mean for us that Jesus is therefore totally going against the Old Testament or saying that the Old Testament's of no worth. And moreover, we know that Jesus isn't totally disregarding the Old Testament because often, I hope you know, that what he quotes from them coming up isn't actually sometimes ever found in the Old Testament. Rather, it's just their interpretation of the Old Testament back then. And so rather than you and I hearing this, but I say to you as the Old Testament was just bad, how should we read it? Well, again, remember verses 17 through 20 last week where Jesus introduced these teachings. Because there, Jesus was clear. He hasn't come to totally abolish the Old Testament, and yet, Jesus has come to fulfill the Old Testament. He has come to live as and teach as the fulfillment of what was always filling up in the Old Testament. And in basic then, that's what he's doing with each of these teachings. Jesus is taking up the Old Testament, he's fulfilling it, he's teaching it, and he's applying it to his followers. But anyway, so that's where we are here in Matthew chapter 5, which then brings us to our outline for how we'll go through what Jesus says in our passage this morning here in verses 21 through 30. And so as you can see, as you heard, we're covering Jesus' teaching on anger and lust this morning, which means, very simply, we'll just have two sections as we go through all of this together. Two sections. First, we will look at what Jesus teaches about the Old Testament command to not murder and how that applies to our anger. And then second, we'll see what Jesus teaches about the Old Testament command to not commit adultery. And we'll see how that applies to our lust. It's that simple. Two sections following Jesus. First, his teaching on anger. Second, Jesus' teaching on lust. And in it all, before we even do begin, just remember, it is true, church, that a lot of this is famously radical and, and deep and piercing from Jesus here. And to be clear, Jesus is speaking here to us like this for a reason. But also, if you are here this morning and you're tempted to hear any of this and draw further away from Jesus because of any of it, just remember, this person here speaking to us is also the same Savior King who's about to go to the cross and die for his people. This is the same God even who created us, who loves us, and who is love walking around and teaching. And so I just do encourage all of us at the beginning of Jesus' teaching here that yes, we should hear this and let's be convicted throughout this message where we hear the Spirit convicting us. And let's, and let's leave here in about 30 minutes or so really wanting to live differently and follow Jesus more. And though, at the same exact time, let's also do it knowing that this isn't some distant, far-removed deity just commanding us. Instead, church, this is our God, our Savior, our King, who is about to go to the cross, who came here for us, who cares for us, and who therefore is teaching us because he loves us and he knows what's best. <laughs> But all that said, churches, let's begin our first section here together. And for this, we'll be in verses 21 through 26, and we'll see Jesus talk about the Old Testament command to not murder and how that applies to our anger. And what we'll do here is we'll go first just step by step to understand Jesus, and then we'll apply what he says. And so first, to understand Jesus, we'll start in just verse 21. Just verse 21. So look down in your Bibles, Matthew 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. We'll stop there. 
So, so as you probably know, that command, you shall not murder, is directly from the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. But then, that, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, that's something they added. And concerning that phrase, it isn't wrong per se, is of course murdering does make someone liable to be judged by God. But what we'll see in a second is that then they therefore then interpreted this Old Testament command to not murder and they thought that they were okay as long as they didn't actually physically murder someone. Which is why Jesus responds the way he does. And so how does he respond? Well, his main response is in verse 22. So look down there now, verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So remember, they basically thought that only those who actually murdered were liable to God's judgment. And yet, what does Jesus say? Well, he uses repetition three times there to emphasize that it isn't just murder, but anger as well, which is the root of murder. And you can see that threefold emphasis because Jesus says first, more generally, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And then Jesus adds, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And then finally, Jesus adds, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And now concerning why he says each of those things, in short, first is the most general, just about anger. And then the second and third, if you're tracking there, are what anger might lead you to say. Because that first word here translated as insults is that word raka in the original, meaning something like idiot. And so it would be insulting someone's mind. And then the second word, more, means something more like scoundrel, insulting somebody's morality. And then finally on this verse, concerning the ending of each statement, judgment, counsel, hell of fire, those are all meant to be synonyms in a way. Because Jesus is basically saying it isn't just murder that makes you liable to deserve God's judgment, but also anger makes us liable to deserve God's judgment, God's counsel, and even God's judgment of hell as well. And so that is verse 22. And we'll apply this to us in a bit, but in short, Jesus is repeating himself three times in slightly different ways to show us, church, to show them, no, it's not just physically murdering that's a problem, but it's also anger in our hearts. It's demeaning thoughts and insulting words as well. Which then leads to verses 23 through 26. And to be honest, these are a bit confusing at first. We will break them down and hopefully understand them. But to basically sum them up, before we read this, just so you know, what Jesus essentially is about to do here is he's going to tell us what we should therefore do now that we know that anger is such a big deal. And you can see he's about to do that because the first word of verse 23 is that word so or therefore. And what he says we should do here is actually really fascinating. Because think about it. What we would expect is that Jesus here would say something like, so watch out for your anger. And now that clearly is implied here. But actually, what we're going to see is that Jesus, in his application of anger here, is going to take it up a step. Because his application is actually going to be, so do whatever it takes for others to not be angry at you. <laughs> it's fascinating. And if that's confusing, just stick with me. We'll read verses 23 through 26 now. And as you hear this, you'll notice Jesus gives two illustrations about what we should do when others are angry at us. So look down at your Bibles, verses 23 through 26 now. So, 
If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So concerning that first illustration, verses 23 and 24, the situation there, as you probably heard, is that people are offering worship to God back then. And Jesus says, if you're doing that and you remember that your brother has something against you, then go and be reconciled and then come and offer your gift to God. And now why would Jesus say this when talking about anger? Well, because in that sort of situation, someone has something against someone else, right? You get that. They're angry. And yet, it's the brother, notice, who has something against you here. He's angry at you. You're not angry with him. And so why would Jesus bring this up? Well, again, because apparently Jesus wants his followers not only to avoid anger ourselves, but he's telling his followers to help others not be angry with them. You see that? Or to say it most positively, Jesus is essentially saying that the command to not murder is fulfilled when we are people who seek to live in peace and reconciliation with others. And that's then confirmed in verses 25 and 26 in Jesus' second illustration. And we'll read those again, just as a reminder. Look down again. This is the second illustration, 25 and 26. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So this illustration now is in the context of someone bringing you to court. And so it's not a brother here, but it's actually an accuser, meaning your legal opponent. And so think about it. This is even now more interesting because we could say, well, yeah, reconciling with your brother makes sense. But now this is someone suing us. And yet, what does Jesus tell his followers to do in such a situation? Well, he says to do your best to come to terms with your accuser, which could also be translated as make friends with your accuser. In other words, do what you can, even in that sort of situation, to make peace. <laughs> and now, why would we do that? Well, as you can see in verses 25 and 26, it's interesting. Jesus is clear. We should try to make peace like that because it's actually the wise and better thing for us to do. Because that's what Jesus is talking about when he mentions, lest he hands you over to the judge and the guard and to prison, you won't get out until you pay the last penny. Because that might sound really foreign to us, but back then they knew people were kept in prison until all their debts were paid. And so Jesus is essentially saying here, make peace because it actually is also the wise, better thing for you to do anyway. But even more generally, why does Jesus use that illustration here to end this paragraph? Well, again, it's because his people are not only to avoid murder and not only to avoid sinful anger internally, but we're also to be people who live in such a way where, if we can, we go and make peace. <laughs> and now, I know that's a lot, but that's then Jesus' teaching on anger here in this passage. And for us to now really apply it to us, I'm sure that for all of us in this room, even as we hear that right away, we probably know some ways that we could follow Jesus' commands here more. 
We probably can list in our minds some ways that we know we get angry with people. And we probably know some ways that we haven't sought peace with people. And so applying this to us first, just in whatever or in whatever and wherever ways the Spirit is leading you to hear Jesus' words and apply them to your life, I encourage you, mark that down and go from here today and seek to follow Jesus more. And so I do think that intrinsically, most of us know that we could apply Jesus' teaching on anger here. And yet, to maybe bring this home a bit more, as I was thinking about this this week and, and reading some commentaries, I, I came to see that maybe, maybe a helpful way to apply this all to us is to use two other words that actually aren't said by Jesus here, but they're implied and they're said in other places of the Bible by Jesus and the apostles. They're two other words that in a way can sum up how to apply all this. And those are the words hate and pride. Hate and pride. Because if you really boil it down, those are the two big things that Jesus is talking about here concerning anger. Because, because first, think about it. Why do we actually get angry with others? Like, why would we call someone a name out loud or insult them in our minds and how we think about them in our hearts? And really, let's, let's be honest, we all do this more frequently than we wish, especially when things don't go our way or with topics or issues we're passionate about or when others just disagree with us. We're all prone to get angry and say things or just feel things. But why? Well, if you boil it down, it is because in that moment, what's going on in our heart is we're feeling some level of hate. Hate. And therefore, the, the first thing Jesus is really getting at here is that there's supposed to be no place for hate toward others in his kingdom. And now quickly, and I'm sure some of you are thinking about this, so quickly, let, let's be clear that yes, there is a place for righteous anger. In the Bible, in God, in Jesus, and even in us. Meaning there is a place for good anger when we see real wrong and injustice. And, and if we love those who are being treated wrongly, we should feel anger about it. But the reality is, brothers and sisters, as sinners, that is really hard for us. And the reality is that often our righteous anger is stained with more hate than we like to admit, isn't it? And we like to say that it's righteous anger because we know we actually may be right. But then, if we were to analyze our heart, we would see that there's a lot of unrighteous hate in our hearts as well. But anyway, so that's the first word here that summarizes Jesus' teaching. And so ask yourself, where have I honestly been like that toward others? And just quickly, by the way, as a side note, we, we know we're on the right track here, applying this with the word hate, because it's Jesus' disciple, John, who in 1 John 3.15, he writes this, quote, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. <laughs> so again, where, where do you, where do I need to confess our murderous hate and anger? And so that's the first word to apply all this. But then, you may wonder, but why is the second word to sum it all up, pride? And in short, it's because, well, remember what says here, Jesus says here in the second half of all of this. Because if hate is what leads us to feel anger, then what is it that often leads us to not go and make peace and reconcile with others when we're not angry but they are? And the answer is often it's just because of our pride. It's pride. Because think of these illustrations that Jesus uses. First, why would the brother not take the time to go and reconcile with his other brother before offering worship? Well, probably because he knows he's okay. 
And so why go with deal with that other brother who's angry with me? That's his problem. Or, in the second illustration, why would the person not come to friends, come to terms with his accuser? Well, probably because they could think, look, he's the one taking me to court. And so I don't want to be friends with him. And so in both situations, the root of not seeking peace is this arrogance and pride. It's this, no way, that's not for me. And now again, let's be honest, that is all of us naturally in conflict, and especially when we think we're in the right. But that's why what Jesus says here is so lovingly radical. Because again, Jesus is calling us here to not be angry, but he's also, and he's calling us to avoid that ourselves, but he's also calling us when people are angry us to go strive and make peace. Remember, blessed are the peacemakers. And so that's this first section in Jesus' teaching on anger. And so again, just one last time, ask yourself, where do I struggle with this? Where is my subtle anger and hate towards others? Where are the areas of my life that honestly, because of my pride, I haven't sought for peace? And just mark the answers to that question down, and then churches go out of here and seek to just change. Let's follow Jesus more in all of this. And let's do it not to earn our salvation, but because our Savior and King tells us to. And because when we do so, when we live in less angry and more peacemaking ways, Jesus is glorified, other people are helped, and we are happier as we're less hateful and more humble people. So that's the first section on anger, which now leads us to our second section this morning where we'll see Jesus talk about the Old Testament command to not commit adultery and how that applies to our lust. And for this, we'll be in verses 27 through 30. And here, like last time, we're going to go verse by verse through what Jesus has to say. And to begin, we'll start now with just verse 27. So Jesus right away moves on to the next topic, and he continues like this, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. So we'll stop there for now. So obviously, Jesus here brings up another command from the Ten Commandments, but this time it's about adultery. And for them back then, just like with that do not murder command, they back then were prone to think that, they, that this only applied to physical, actual adultery with a woman who was not your spouse. But what does Jesus say to that? Well, now look at verse 28. And, and, and this church would have been shocking to them, just as it is to us. But again, here is our Savior King explaining the ways of his kingdom. And he says this, verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So notice, the most shocking thing here is that Jesus uses the same verb and phrase, quote, has already committed adultery with her. Jesus does not decide to say, you do something similar to adultery. No, Jesus says, this is committing adultery. Which means, let's be clear, that I would guess and assume for basically everyone then in this room, according to Jesus here, we are adulterers. We are. Because Jesus is bold and he is clear. And I'm sure part of the reason he says this is because even just this one verse then does show every single one of us why we so desperately do need a savior. Why we need him to go to the cross and and die for our sins. 
But anyway, so Jesus is talking about committing adultery in this verse. And what specifically, though, does he say? Well, notice, he, he says that while they back then and while we might be prone to think that adultery can really only happen with our bodies, Jesus says adultery can happen just in the heart. And while they and while we might think that adultery can only really happen by touching, Jesus says actually adultery can happen just by looking. Which finally on this verse leads though to that phrase, with lustful intent, with lustful intent. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery. And that's actually very important, that phrase. And to be honest, before studying this this week, I actually didn't know what I'm about to share with you. But this is incredibly important and it's interesting. And so first, on this phrase, lustful intent, let's be clear. Jesus here is, of course, talking about lust. And that word lust, just so you know, is simply the word for desire in the original Greek. But it's a word that was often used to talk about illicit sexual desire. And so this is a phrase talking about sinful sexual desire. That's that's clear. And yet, what's actually not so clear in Jesus' phrase here, and what I think is probably intentionally ambiguous by him, is is what that desire, that lust is directed toward here. That's ambiguous. What that desire, that lust is directed towards. And I know, you may hear that and think it's pretty obvious, right? That this lustful intent is the person lustfully wanting the other person sexually. And clearly, that is one way to definitely read this phrase. And in fact, some translations just make the decision to interpret it that way. Like the King James Version, which famously decides to interpret this as someone who looks on a woman to lust after her. And so that, of course, is one way to read this, and I think that is obviously intended by Jesus. And yet, fascinatingly, in the way that Jesus actually says this, this phrase also could be talking about wanting the other person to lust after you. Wanting the person to lust after you. And that's why the ESV decides to leave it as just lustful intent. Because, because what's the intent? Are you lusting after them? Or are you looking at them and you really want them to lust after you? It could be either in the original Greek. Because literally it just reads, everyone who looks at a woman toward lust them. In hearing that, you can see it could mean you look after them and you lust after them. Or it could mean you looking at them and you really want lust from them. You want their lust. And now I spent some time on that first because that's just what Jesus says here in God's word and so it's good for us to know that. But then also, we spend time on that because I do think then that right away that starts to show us how this applies to all of us with whatever we struggle with and being men or women. Because yes, we may, we may hear this verse and think immediately of the most obvious application. And that's us struggling, at, lusting after others. Meaning looking at them and wanting them sexually. And of course, that is really true here and serious. But then also, I think Jesus says this phrase this way because then this also can apply to wanting someone to desire you sexually. Even in subtle ways. And knowing that, that then means that this is a broad command here from Jesus that applies to all of us in so many different ways. Because think about it, that then means that Jesus' statement here first could apply to, of course, yes, things like looking at someone in lust. Or church, what we watch on TV. Or pornography, of course. Which is a terrible plague that's infecting God's world and even God's people. 
or anything clearly lustful like that. And we as God's people must fight those things for our good, for Jesus' glory. And Jesus is about to tell us that in a minute. But then also second, because this phrase lustful intent also could be talking about looking at others and wanting them to desire you, it then means that Jesus' command here may apply to things like what pictures we decide to post on social media or why we buy and wear certain clothes or why we act certain ways toward other of others of the opposite gender or even the motivation in our hearts for why we do things, even good things like eating healthy or working out or wanting to look good and more. All because Jesus is telling us that the command to not commit adultery is really fulfilled when we see that it means that God created love and sex and our bodies and marriage and God created the relationship between a man and a woman and men and women. He created all of that good and yet taking lustful looks at someone who is not your spouse or looking at someone who is not your spouse and wanting them to take lustful looks at you Both of those things are taking what God created good and twisting it for our own selfish desires. And doing that is hurtful to us as lust can start to consume our hearts. It's hurtful to others as we're essentially just treating others like objects. And it's not glorifying to God in the way he intended our relationships to be. That's verses 27 and 28, which finally leads to verses 29 and 30. And these are Jesus' statements of how then we should apply all of that. And these are famously radical intents. And so with all that said, let's look down at verses 29 through 30, our last verses for the morning. Jesus says this. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members that your whole body go into hell. So again, those are intense. And to be clear, they were just as intense back then as well. And what does Jesus mean by them? Well, in short, he means because verse 28 about lust that we just talked about is true. And do whatever it takes to stop your lust. Meaning, again, to stop your sinful sexual desire for others or your sinful desire for them to desire you. Do whatever it takes. And Why? Well, because Jesus is clear twice that lust is something that sends people to hell. And I know that sounds intense, and it is, but Jesus basically says it and means it. Lust is something that sends people to hell. And now, to be really clear, and listen up if that's confusing, to be really clear, this does not mean that someone can be saved by Jesus and always have all their sins forgiven in the gospel, and yet somehow lust so bad that they end up going to hell. Jesus would never say that, and there is forgiveness for all sin in Christ. That is the good news of Jesus. And so if you are here, and you struggle strongly with lust in some way, which I'm sure is many of us, you do need to know there is always forgiveness in the gospel of Jesus. The Bible is clear. Jesus' grace abounds over any and all sin, including lustful sin. And so that is absolutely true. And yet, how then can Jesus basically say lust can eventually send someone to hell? Well, think about it this way. Do you know what is one of the main things 
that keeps people from genuinely trusting in Jesus and loving the gospel and living for Jesus, where really often it's lust. It's lust. And, and I know we all are more complex than that, and Jesus knows that too, and yet the reality is, and it has been for thousands of years, that sexual desire in us and in our world is strong and pervasive and compelling. And today for us, it is so strong and pervasive and compelling that our culture has now basically decided to start defining who we are by our sexuality and our personal sexual fulfillment. And so every one of us in this room, we see it every single day. Sexuality is strong. Lust is strong. And again, we all know that and so does Jesus. And therefore, when Jesus talks about lust basically being a reason why someone may eventually go to hell, again, he is saying that in this world that is so sex-soaked and lust-laden, what often happens is that people don't really embrace Jesus' gospel they don't actually want to follow him, and they therefore are not in his kingdom. And why? Well, honestly, often a big part of it is their sexual desire and lust. They want certain sexual fulfillment, or they want people to find them attractive so badly that it consumes them, and there's not much room for Jesus. And that being true, what is Jesus' answer to that? Well, again, it's therefore do whatever it takes to stop your lust. <laughs> do whatever it takes. And quickly know that's what basically Jesus is getting at with that tearing out your eye and cutting off your hand talk because while we may wonder if that's meant to be taken literally, the reality is none of Jesus' apostles nor his early disciples took him literally here per se. Instead, they understood Jesus to mean that we really do need to flee lust and do whatever it takes to avoid lust. All because one last time, church, lust is dangerous. And because more generally, lust is not God's good designed way for marriage, for our sexuality, or for the relationships and interactions between men and women. And so, brothers and sisters, let's avoid lust. And for each of us, let's make sure to take what Jesus says here and make sure we make it personal. Make it your aim to personally avoid lust. And again, like with anger, let's do it for our good. Let's do it for the good of those who we're treating as objects in our lust or that we're trying to entice to lust after us. And ultimately, let's do it for God's glory. Because really, on that last point, talking about God's glory, think about it. What not lusting after others and what obeying Jesus here more and more ultimately will show us, will show those around us, and even will show Jesus is that we know that Jesus is better and more glorious than mere sexual fulfillment. <laughs> That's what we believe. Because aiming not to lust above all means, church, that we actually desire Jesus more than any temporary satisfaction that lust can provide. So that's our passage, church. <laughs> that is our Savior King's teaching on anger and hate and pride and seeking peace. And that's his instruction on lust and purity and, and love and God's good intention for sex, marriage, relationship between men and women. Which is a lot. And it all therefore leads us to now start to come to a close with one final big question for the morning. One final big question. And that's, okay, so that's what Jesus says. But now really, how do we go do this? <laughs> how? How? 
And I want to bring this up because I do think by being only here in Matthew chapter 5, we could all hear all this and think, okay, so that's what Jesus says. And therefore, that now means that it's just up to me and my willpower to go and do this. Thanks, Jesus. I'll now go do this and I will avoid anger and I will avoid loss. But the issue is, as you, as you might know, in the Bible, people respond like that all the time after hearing God's instructions. They respond with a, yes, I will go do that. And yet, guess what? They then always can't do it if they rely on their own willpower. <laughs> they can't. And we can't. I mean, just examples, right? Think of the people of Israel uh, listening to Moses and saying yes, and then the next day basically complaining and grumbling. <laughs> or, or think of the people of Israel before Joshua. Yes, we will serve the Lord, and then they don't. Or think of Peter boldly telling Jesus, I will never deny you, and then he does. Or think of Paul saying, I do not do what I want to do and I don't do the things I want. And he's an apostle and even a Christian. And so the truth is, we can't do this on our own. But that's why I want us to end here this morning by answering that how question by simply remembering the gospel in Jesus in all of us. The gospel in Jesus. Or to say it using a phrase from our passage even this morning. As we think about how to do this, let's remember who is saying this. Who the but I is and the but I say to you. Because again, remember, Jesus isn't some strict, far removed deity, nor is he just our teacher. Instead, he really is the one who knows we are such sinners and he's going to die for us. He is the one who saves us by grace through faith in what he did alone. He's the one who is with us, church, by his spirit. He's the one who loves us and changes us to be more like him. And he's the one who is so for each one of us as his people. He is every day loving us, changing us, and seeking our good and his glory in us. And all that said, again, that means that yes, we do want to go forth from here and let's fight our anger and pride. And yes, let's kill our lust. Let's strive for humility, peace, purity, love. And yet, church, let's do it knowing that we can only do it as Jesus' people. We can only do it because we have Christ for us, with us, in us. To live as Christ, right, Paul said. It's not I'm saved now to live as my own willpower, but to live as Christ, <laughs> We have Jesus on our side. He loves us. He helps us. And he alone can empower us to do what he says. And so one final time, church, yes, let's go forth from here. Let's fight our anger. Let's remove any pride that keeps us from making, making peace. Let's struggle to cut off any and all lust. Let's aim for love. But how? Well, by relying on the same Jesus who's teaching this to us, who died for us, and who lives for us. By knowing that he saved us in the gospel, that he loves us, and therefore we can go on day by day in the strength he provides and live more like this. For our good, for the good of others around us, and for his glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.